Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm so delighted and honored to welcome you today to our conference uh, where we discuss the holiday basket, successful stories to help you, your company, your business, think creatively and strategize different immigration options. I have with me two of my brilliant attorneys, attorney Aaron Finkelstein, who's been the managing attorney of the firm, for several years, and Chris Drynan, who's also another senior attorney with tons of years of experience, two brilliant lawyers who can really work and have worked the strategies and brainstormed to make magic happen for the benefit of our clients. So this holiday season, we really thought, hmm, what can we give for our clients that'll make them a little bit think outside the box? Maybe some of these you've already heard of before, but how can we repackage it in a way that we can actually make some magic happen for you as business owners, as employers, as companies, etc.? Since we lawyers at the Murthy Law Firm deal with a wide variety of cases and clients, we just like to focus on some of the strategies that we've developed successfully to meet your unique needs and to deal with some of the more challenging situations that we work on that might give you an idea of the sample ways to approach issues. So one of the areas we've been reading and hearing a lot about recently has been the entrepreneurial H-1B visa option, because obviously there's a conflict because the government has been talking about the employer-employee relationship and entrepreneur and how can you own the company and also have an H-1B sponsorship as an employer. So Aaron, would you just discuss what the heck this means? Absolutely. You know, in the past year, USCIS has really promoted the idea of entrepreneur immigration, immigration for the owners and founders of startup uh, businesses, especially for those who attend U.S. colleges and universities. The idea behind the USCIS's promotion is primarily because there's a sense that too many people who foreign nationals who are graduating from college, graduating from U.S. universities, have the brains, the ability, the means, don't necessarily want to pursue the uh, traditional immigration processes. Processes such as pursuing OPT, perhaps going on to an H-1B, perhaps going on to a sponsored green card process that may be not something that they feel comfortable to pursue. In the meantime, many, many, many startup companies in the U.S. that have shown themselves to be hugely profitable, those companies have come from foreign nationals who have developed those strategies for those companies to be successful. So the USCIS has um, has promoted heavily the idea that there should be a means or an ability um, to secure approval of an H-1B uh, of an H-1B attorney for a startup company for an H-1B petition, excuse me, for a startup company, and for that company's president, founder, or majority owner, simply because the USCIS did not accept the concept that so simply because the USCIS did not want to accept the concept that these. Uh, people should leave the United States. So in order to do that, they had to overcome an issue called employer-employee relationship. So they've come up with the entrepreneur H-1B in which they've developed to be able to overcome that issue. Yeah, and I think you meant when you said uh, H-1B petition for lawyers, for attorneys, I think you didn't mean that. I think we were talking more about trying to think outside the box. The government realizes in this bad economy that we just can't ignore an extremely important segment of the population, which is an acknowledgement of how entrepreneurs can certainly be 
grown from immigrants and particularly immigrants with a high level of education who can contribute tremendously to our economy. So, Chris, how would you suggest uh, what do you think are now some of the problems or challenges for smaller startup companies in trying to obtain this wonderful entrepreneurial type of H visa? Well, this has always been a challenging type of application for a, uh, for a small startup company. Um, and it really became even more challenging in January 2010 after the release of what we call the Newfeld Memorandum, um, which I'm sure many of our listeners have heard of. Um, and that particular memorandum deals with the issue of the employer-employee relationship. Um, and that is very problematic when you're talking about a small startup company because these are typically going to be closely held companies. Uh, and the entrepreneur that you're filing the H-1B for may very well be the majority owner of the company, president, general manager of the company as well. Um, and under the guidance of the Newfeld memo, it's been almost impossible to demonstrate a legitimate employer-employee relationship in this situation. Okay. Um, and I know we've often used the term visa, H-1B visa, but we really mean both the petition itself and the visa issuance at a consular post abroad. So I didn't want someone to say, hey, how come the lawyers didn't know the difference between a visa and a petition? We know it, but we use the term in a more generic fashion and general fashion because that's how the world generally looks at it. So I thought I would just briefly touch upon a question and answer which was published on the USCIS website of dated August 2011, where the USCIS stated that it would be willing to accept the existence of an employer-employee relationship, even in the entrepreneurial situation where the prospective H-1B applicant owned a majority share of the company and was its founder or president. And I know some of you are here on today's conference call with us. As long as it could also be shown that there was some external check on the authority of this person, like an independent board of directors. The question, the USCIS questions and an, question and answer really makes it clear that if the employer or petitioner provides evidence that there is a separate board of directors which has the ability to hire, fire, pay, supervise, or otherwise control the beneficiary's employment, the, the petitioner or the H-1B employer may be able to establish the employer-employee relationship with such a beneficiary. So, Chris, I know you guys do a lot of this kind of stuff, and you've been successfully doing it in the non-immigrant slash H-1B department of the multi-law firm. Can you give us some sort of couple of examples, if you can, of the kinds of cases or how we've successfully approached these issues? Well, we've successfully filed a number of these, and these almost always fall into the uh, into the IT arena. These are small, uh, a lot of times small internet startups. Um, and as the entrepreneur title would imply, these uh, what we're fi the person we're filing for typically is the president or the general manager. Uh, they might own the vast majority of the shares. Um, and to overcome the, uh, the issue of the employer-employee relationship here, um, we've submitted uh, proof that there's a board of directors in existence, uh, and the board of directors has the legal authority to control the terms of the beneficiary's employment even if this authority is not uh, exercised in practice in a day-to-day -day fashion. You have to show they have the, the legal authority to do so. Um, we've submitted corporate minutes showing the relationship uh, between the board of directors and the H-1B employee. Um, you know, sort of um, what we call indicia of oversight of the employee. Um, and typically we also submit a fairly lengthy uh, memorandum of law um, that incorporates the, the USCIS press releases on this issue, uh, basically to tie everything together. 
Um, and we've thus far have had very good success with this. Um, and we've received a number of approvals, even without request for evidence. Um, and this That's pretty good. It That's is. great. Congratulations, is. Chris. Thank you, Sheila. Okay, so Aaron, so how would you summarize this sort of policy if you could in a sentence or two? Well, I think these cases have been successful because we're able to show there's a legitimate employer-employee relationship based on the existence of some internal control on the H-1B employee's actions. Even though they were the president or manager of the company, and even though they had overall authority over the company's operations, nonetheless, we were able to do so. Okay. And uh, you're saying, Chris, that this is also an option for other kinds of businesses then? This could theoretically be an option for any kind of business that's in the the startup closely held phase. Uh, It's a a very good option that that for a long time wasn't really available. Um, One thing we should add at this point is that an H-1B petition here does not necessarily lead to a green card. Um, because if you're, you're talking about a green card filing, the fact that you have an ownership in the, uh, interest in the company is going to be a big problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is not necessarily a permanent solution. Okay. Uh, now let's change gears a little bit and jump from the H-1B to the EB-3 and the EB-2 category, which I know is a big issue that all of your employees come to you often to say, hey, I've got this approval or I don't want EB-3 because people who are born in particularly in a country like, well, actually every country is affected by the EB-3 backlogs. um, And the backlogs are almost non-existent for citizens of all other countries except China and India. But the lines are a little bit shorter, even with those categories for the EB-2 category. Plus, we want to touch upon a very important topic, which is the exceptional ability classification, which is different than the regular EB-2, where a person may not be qualified under the narrow definitions of EB-2. So we thought we would touch upon this briefly because in very simplified terms, the um, a person with a three-year bachelor's degree, which is very common in countries like India and the United Kingdom and maybe even Canada, is not equivalent to a U.S. bachelor's degree in the eyes of the USCIS, even though they might and many other experts may disagree with the level of knowledge that they have and so how we've approached this. So, Chris, can you just share with us a broad overview before we have Aaron delve into the details? Yeah, this all goes to the, to the issue of educational equivalency. Um, you'll, hear the, you'll hear the language of a single-source bachelor's degree meaning you have to have one degree that's, that's equivalent to a U.S. four-year bachelor's degree. And as you noted, Sheila, that's, that's not the case in a lot of the world. Um, thus, if you have an employee who has only this three-year bachelor's degree and, and nothing else beyond that, even if they have decades of experience in the industry, may be restricted to applying for a green card in the EB-3 skilled worker category, uh, simply because they can't qualify for the EB-2 category. Um, normally, to qualify for what we'll, we'll refer to as the normal EB-2 category, um, you have to have either the equivalent of a U.S. master's degree or the equivalent of a U.S. bachelor's degree followed by five years of relevant experience. Um, an employee with only a three-year bachelor's degree cannot meet either of these requirements. And for an employee who's born in India and China, uh, the difference between EB-2 and EB-3 could amount to decades. And this is a, a very serious problem. Sure, sure, sure. And and Aaron, so we'll move on to you. Can you give us examples of successfully filed cases in the EB-2 preference uh, for uh, candidates with just a three-year degree and, and what strategy we've used at the multi-law firm? Sure. There's a category called exceptional ability. And recently, Murthy attorneys have been successful filing EB-2 preference category cases for people who had the three-year degree and would not otherwise qualify using this rarely used EB-2 exceptional ability category. 
The exceptional ability category is available to key employees who have made substantial contributions to the field of endeavor and of distinguished merit and ability. To qualify for this category, an application must demonstrate that they meet three of the requirements from the list of six below, from the list of six um, that I have written here. What, I'll just read them real quickly for you. Degrees relating to this area of exceptional ability, letter from current or former employees showing at least 10 years of experience. Employer. Employer showing at least 10 years of experience, licensed to practice in the profession, person that has command of a salary or remuneration that demonstrates operating on an exceptional ability or a high level, membership in a professional organization, or recognition for achievements and significant contributions to the industry or field by their peers, government entities, or professional or business organization. But just meeting three of these criteria or two of these criteria is generally not going to be enough. You generally have to show that you meet the criteria in a manner that exceeds normal expectations within the industry, something I like to call just a cut above the rest. So for example, if you have a letter showing that you have 10 years of experience, it's 10 years of experience not just performing the job, but perhaps exceeding people's expectations as you're doing the job and going forward. I am not so sure, actually. It sounds more like, and maybe we, it's because it's not as high a standard as national interest waiver, where we look at um, the person being both uh, whose work is in the national interest of the country and they satisfy the EB2 criteria of a master's degree or bachelor's and five. Um, here you have a checklist of six items and presumably meeting some or all of these items and going through the checklist. I think the USCIS is asking a lot of questions and challenging when people, because they get confused between exceptional ability in the EB2 category and exceptional ability in the, ex, uh, you know, the NIW exceptional ability and in their mind, extraordinary ability for EB1, the outstanding ability for EB1, the outstanding professor researcher, or the EB2 exceptional ability. I think the USCIS is more confused. The way the actual statute or regulations address this, it actually makes it sound that if you just go through this checklist, a lot of your employees that potentially couldn't challenge uh, or couldn't satisfy the EB2 traditional method with having not having the four-year bachelor's degree plus the five years of experience could actually slip in and slide in, and Murthy Law Firm has done many of these cases successfully. The fact is the USCIS itself gets confused. And by the way, it's good when we Murthy Law Firm lawyers have a lively discussion and we say, really, that's not my understanding, that you can understand why there is so much debate in the community and why many, many law firms and lawyers refuse to take some of these cases because of the complexity and nuances involved. But we have created a strategy where we've been successful in doing this by going through and proving to the government that, look, we meet the the standard under the regulations or the regulatory standard. Aaron? Well, I would, I would, I would never disagree with you on uh, on a teleconference. I'm just <laughs> kidding. Yeah, the the thing is, I don't disagree with what you're saying. Just that the fact remains that if you only go based on the list of six that are listed there, and you don't try to, so to speak, accentuate your positives with each step along the way, uh, what you hope may be outstanding merit and and distinguished ability may just come up. Yeah, that's that's basically where he should be. So each one of these issues, it's not enough to just meet the issue. You really want to, in your own way, try to hit it out of the park, really show 
all the positive attributes that you can as you work your way through. Now, I agree it's not on the level of NIW, and it's not on the level of extraordinary ability where you're looking for top 5%. But nonetheless, as you start developing conceptually, if you want to win, you've got to show all your really strong positive attributes. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Um, Another area I know that we've been very, very creative and nuanced in trying to address complex or difficult issues is when there's issues dealing with burdensome ability to pay issues for RFEs, notice of intentions to revoke, which are noirs, and noids, which are notice of intentions to deny. So, Chris, would you talk about some of the successes that we've uh, been able to encounter in these areas? Well, this is something we've been seeing a lot, um, those of us who do do consultations here. Uh, it's a very common thing to get a, an RFE or a, or a NOR or a NOID, as we call them in the, in the practice, um, basically asking about ability to pay. And sometimes uh, this is for a peti- an I-140 immigrant worker petition that's already been approved, um, sometimes years before. Um, and Basically, what this comes down to is they're asking for uh, proof that a company can afford to pay the prevailing wages or the offered wage on every I-140 that they've ever filed, um, not just the one that you're, that you're filing that, that is the subject of this particular filing. Okay. Thanks, thanks, Chris. And Aaron, if you would elaborate a little bit on what, you know, what kind of RFEs we're seeing and how we're able to challenge and win these cases. Well, I agree with Chris that we've been seeing a lot of these RFEs, and a lot of the RFEs that we see for ability to pay is something that we've been seeing commonly over the years. So it is something statutorily, regulatorily, they're permitted to put out there and they're permitted to ask. I think where it's become a little bit more challenging now is that when they're issuing the RFEs, instead of asking to demonstrate the ability to pay for one individual employee, they're focusing on asking the ability to pay for many of the people that they sponsored, if not all of the people that they sponsored. So for example, if a company has sponsored 30 or 40 or 50 employees where they might already have received I-140 approvals, when they issue the RFE for that 41st employee, they're not asking necessarily to just demonstrate the ability to pay for that individual employee, but they're focusing in and they're asking for the ability to pay for all the employees plus that employee on top of it, which becomes extraordinarily burdensome in the limited amount of time that we're given. Okay, great. And Chris, what's the kind of strategy that we've tried to develop? Well, uh, this is the strategy they've been using, particularly in our, our special projects department here, um, is basically attacking the, uh, the authority of USCIS to, to, ask, to issue these really burdensome ability to pay RFEs. Um, essentially, we've argued that the law and the regulations only require that the employer demonstrate they have the ability to pay the wage offered in that particular filing to that particular employee. Um, when an employer files an I-140 for an employee or for a prospective employee, they need to show that they have sufficient funds to pay that employee. Uh, it could be through copies of the worker's W-2 forms if they're already employed there, uh, copies of the company tax returns or financial statements, or a combination of these. Um, it's not required by any regulation that employers rep- repeatedly demonstrate uh, the ability to pay the wage for every I-140 they've, they've filed, uh, potentially over a course of years. Um, that's not a requirement that's supported by the regulations, and it really should not be imposed by USCIS unless they're willing to go through a formal rulemaking process to create such a regulation. Uh, and that's not something that they've done. 
Um, and we've had success with this. It's a, it's a strategy we're using currently on a, a number of cases. Okay. And so I think we can't stress the importance of what Chris just mentioned, which is you as employers should never give up hope if you find that you're getting some kind of an RFE which you consider to be unreasonable or excessive on the part of any governmental agency, whether it's the USCIS in this example that Chris just gave, or U.S. Department of Labor, or U.S. Department of State at consulates, uh, because the most beautiful and amazing thing about this great country uh, and it being a beacon of freedom for the rest of the world is we do have a U.S. Constitution, which is the bedrock on which all of the other laws of this country are um, you know, basically created. And therefore, if the RFE uh, or the notice of intent to revoke or the notice of intent to deny sounds to you to be completely unreasonable, then challenge the government, respond to them, tell them that in a nice way, you have no darn business issuing what you just issued because this goes beyond what the law, the statute, the regulations allows, and then try to give them a little bit to appease them, but also raise this as a uh, as an issue that we can definitely challenge. We've done that successfully over and over and over again at the multi-law firm. Again, being a brilliant lawyer, being a good lawyer, being a creative lawyer, being aggressive, it's all intertwined because we have to fight like pit bulls for our clients to give you the success that you deserve, especially when we believe that the government is exceeding the scope of what they're allowed to do under the law. Um, Chris, I know we've talked a little bit in the past and we touched upon it briefly in the beginning um, on the uh, issue again that, you know, based on the January 2010 USCIS Newfeld memo about the employer-employee relationship, we talked about the entrepreneurial issue, but what kind of strategies have we been using to try and overcome this? Because I know IT consulting companies have been terribly impacted, and many, many of our co company clients are very unhappy with the, 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 the issues they've been dealing with. And I know Multi-Law Firm mm -hmm. has been very, very successful in many of these cases. We have, and this is something we've talked about in these teleconferences before. Um, and uh, as you know, we've we talked about the Newfeld Memorandum a little bit earlier. Um, we've really developed, developed a very comprehensive strategy for preparing H-1B petitions and for responding to requests for evidence uh, that are asking about the employer-employer relationship. Um, we've developed uh, effective strategies for some very specific situations um, where you don't have an in-client letter available, which is, is not an uncommon situation. A lot of in-clients, particularly large ones, uh, just not willing to issue an in-client letter. Um, and it's an important to, for an employer to know that the lack of an in-client letter is not going to be fatal to the case. Um, you can use other documents in conjunction um, with legal argument uh, to still obtain an approval in these cases. Um, and another part of the, the strategy that we've developed here is, is what I'd call tactical decisions in regard to how long of a duration you ask for in an H-1B filing. Um, a case with weak documentation in terms of the in-client um, may not be viable if you're asking for a three-year approval notice. However, the same case, uh, if you make a tactical decision to only request one year or 18 months of duration, you might have a reasonable chance of uh, getting an approval there. And I, and I really think it's important to point out these facts to employers as we're, we're approaching the H-1B filing season. Um, we talk to employers every day. And many of them are, have a reluctance right now to pursue H-1B petitions because they believe they're, they're too difficult to get them approved or they're too burdensome uh, in terms of documentation. And this really is generally not true. If you have an H-1B petition that's properly prepared and presented, it's still entirely possible to get the case approved. 
even if you don't have perfect documentation, even if you have multiple mid-vendors involved, even if you can't attain, obtain an in-client letter. Um, there's no reason to fear H-1Bs. It's really just a matter of strategically presenting the petition. Ah, and, and so just to consider further the point that Chris just made is, um, you know, the H-1B slash non-immigrant department at the Murthy Law Firm has really figured out and worked on detailed uh, strategies and methodology for trying to document the employer-employee relationship in an H-1B case with an ID consulting company. And ba generally, we've achieved great success in obtaining the H-1B approval even without receiving a request for evidence or RFE in many, many cases. And in some cases, when we do get the RFE, responding to the RFE successfully, and we get, unfortunately, sometimes RFEs from other uh, law firms and where the company has done it without using the Murthy Law Firm, which is part of the reason, I think, that they were getting some of these ridiculous where the dots don't join up or there's a different work location, et cetera. And we try to basically patch it up and make magic happen to help you get your approval. So, Aaron, can you just briefly go over um, the kind of documents that we've sort of used in these kinds of cases? I am cognizant of the fact that we do try to wrap up in 30 to 40 minutes, and we have a few minutes left, by the way, but we just want to make sure that we share all of our fabulous strategies. Sure, and I'm just going to echo what you were saying in terms of, uh, and Chris was saying in terms of strategically presenting the petition is an enormous thing, and we've seen a residual benefit for that as well at the consulates. Normally, that when you have a situation where documents that we've developed for filing for IT consulting H-1B petitions have also had an impact when employees in these cases attempt to apply for their H-1B visa stamp at a U.S. consulate abroad. As our listeners are probably well aware, one of the recurring problems in the past several years has been the issuance of burdensome requests for evidence of US of, at the U.S. consulates, so-called 221G letters. A related issue is the placement of visa applications into administrative processing by the U.S. consulates, which can delay applications for months or even longer. Uh, we've noticed that the presentation of a properly documented H-1B petition with all the contractual relationships between employers, vendors, and clients fully documented has resulted in a lower rate of 221Gs and administrative processing. While some of these uh, improvements uh, seem to be due to a more reasonable procedure at the U.S. consulates. We also believe that it's due to the detailed documentation packages that we've developed for these cases. If the consulates can clearly see the contractual relationship between all the parties, it's far more likely to receive a favorable result without a 221G request. So I think that connecting the dots and that putting it all together in a very favorable way from the beginning, from the preparation of the package through the time of actually when you travel abroad and decide that you're going to submit for a visa stamp is absolutely incredible. And, and, and Aaron couldn't have said it more accurately because you sometimes feel very frustrated with this process because you feel helpless when it's a foreign embassy or consulate outside of the country because our options in terms of challenging the government for being unreasonable is such a high standard because the government enjoys what's called the doctrine. It's, a, it's a basically a doctrine where the government, federal government is exempt. Um, and so what the only thing that in most such cases that we can do uh, or that you as an employer can do and we as your attorneys can help you with is filing some kind of a writ of mandamus, which is, you know, even though our options are limited, 
we can ask the U.S. Department of State in Washington, D.C., the legal net, the visa office, to get involved. We can do certain things, but, you know, the options are comparatively more limited uh, in such cases. So, Aaron, do you want to describe a little bit of what, you know, what the option could be? Uh, sure. So, an option, one of the things about the options is... Um, is that sometimes you can you can approach uh, uh, you can approach senators, congressmen. You can try various ways to sort through what's going on to add a little bit of pressure, not to pressure them to make the to make a positive or negative decision, but just simply pressure them to get a decision at all. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes these measures don't work, and they result in a valuable employee being delayed for months or indefinitely. Furthermore, once you've undertaken these uh, these efforts, there's traditionally not much recourse that you can do at all in order to push things through successfully. Okay, very good. Um, and so, you know, we at the Murthy Law Firm have basically taken a very aggressive stance in regard to delayed visa applications. Uh, the case involves, for example, one example that we can think of is where it involved an immigrant visa petition that had been pending for several years with no clear explanation for the delay. And after several unsuccessful attempts uh, to resolve the situation through normal channels, the Murthy law firm attorneys, then we filed a suit against the U.S. Department, the writ of mandamus, which is a request that a federal judge order the U.S. government to take some action that they have failed to do. Essentially, the lawsuit requests that a federal judge order the U.S. Department of State to give us a decision one way or the other, either approve it or deny it. But you can't just keep a case under a 221G administrative delay processing month after month, year after year, decade after decade, and ruin somebody's life because they can't move. They feel that they are stuck in the middle. Um, so, Chris, can you explain a little bit more about writs of mandamus? Well, we've been using writs of mandamus for years against USCIS here in the here in the states uh, to resolve cases that have been uh, excessively delayed. Um, they're used a lot for adjustment of status cases that have been uh, been sitting around for years, uh, for visa petition cases here, um, for almost anything. Um, now they've been used very rarely against the Department of State, which is what we did here, um, because of a, a legal concept. Uh, it's called the Doctrine of Consular Non-Reviewability, um, which is very similar to it. It's the same concept as diplomatic immunity. Uh, in general, you cannot sue a consular. That was a term that slipped my mind. Thank you. Yes. Chris. In general, you can't sue a consular official uh, who's pre for performing their official duties. Um, there are some exceptions to this rule. Uh, there have been a few cases through the years that have dealt with this concept. And after a lot of research into this, into this issue, uh, the attorneys here at Murthy decided uh, that we're on pretty sound legal ground in filing this particular writ of mandamus against the Department of State. Um, and sure enough, shortly after the, the writ of mandamus was filed, uh, the U.S. consulate issued the immigrant's visa, immigrant visa to the client. Um, and that was even before the government's deadline to respond to the lawsuit. Um, clearly, it was the filing of the writ of mandamus that resulted in the issuance of the visa, even if the case was never actually decided by a federal judge. Uh, it was really the filing of the, the lawsuit that prompted the Department of State to, to finally take action. Absolutely. If the law is on our side, fight for it. If the law is not on our side and we just want an answer so we can make a decision one way or the other to help the employer and the employee move things along, we do what it takes. So, Aaron, have we, can we use the writ of mandamus 
besides visa issues and other kinds of cases? And how, how have, have the Multi Law Firm been successful in many other situations? Absolutely. Well, this particular case related to a delay in regard to an immigrant visa petition, there's no reason for the same strategy not to work in cases where key employees who H-1Bs or L-1 visas have been relegated to administrative processing. An employee who's in this situation should definitely consider the writ of mandamus route rather than to simply accept that a valued employee will be unavailable. Yeah, and, and I've, I've even remember seeing years ago a case where I think there were 22 or 23 uh, petitions that the employer, the H-1B employer, had responded to the RFEs. Um, and the case was just sitting for about 10 or 11 or 12 months, and they hired the multi-law firm to file the 23 writs of mandamus. And guess what? Two weeks later, we got... I think five approvals immediately, and the other 16 ended up getting another second RFE, which is very unusual in of itself. And then we responded to it, and all but I think one or maybe two got approved after the RFE response. And all happened because multi-law firm filed the writ of mandamus challenging the government and saying, excuse me, you need to give us an answer because my client cannot wait indefinitely for the government to figure out what's going on with this case. So as you can see in these examples that both Chris Drynan and Aaron Finkelstein so beautifully explained and went over, we have many, many options. There are a lot of nuances, subtleties, and complexities that exist in immigration law, as we all are aware. But if you work and team up with an awesome law firm or immigration legal team like all of us here at the Muthi Law Firm, or hopefully with your own lawyers if you're so thrilled with them and they're able to guide you and help you, the bottom line is you as a business, you as an employer, you as the HR manager, you as the immigration advisor needs to have on your side powerful, valuable, useful, up-to-date, cutting-edge information that will help you to sleep better at night, that will help you to be protecting and taking care of the company and the business so that you can do what you do best, which is provided, provide the value and the services so that you can continue to stay profitable, contribute to the economy, continue to create jobs, and hire the best legal team to help you to accomplish your immigration goals. With all of that said, from all of us here at the Murthy Law Firm, from me personally, Sheila Murthy, and my entire team, we wish all of you a happy holiday season. Best wishes for the coming new year, and I hope you appreciate and enjoy the basket of goodies we just shared with you. Have a great day. Bye-bye.